Welcome to another episode of Single Payer Radio. We broadcast from downtown Louisville here at the Hayburn Building. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, and we're an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for our National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current system that oftentimes values profit over patients and leaves more than a hundred million people in this country with medical debt. And we're a longstanding community partner with WFMP 1065 forwardradio.org. Views and opinions expressed on our show are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with a group. Single payer radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 FM on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our radio signal, you can live stream us at forwardradio.org. If you miss a show or you want to re-listen, you can do this at forwardradio.org slash single-payer radio. WFMP is an all-volunteer station. We rely on the community for your ideas and our funding. Join us forwardradio.org. Earlier this month, the Senate, we are recording this at the end of June, women's healthcare and economic security took a major hit from the Supreme Court with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. As the Economic Policy Institute notes, the first states banning abortion, which includes Kentucky, just happen to be states with the lowest minimum wages, the most tight-fisted policies on Medicaid and other core family support programs. For more information, you can go to inequality.org. And as uh, might be discussed, that Congress has passed a gun bill for the purposes of background checks for younger gun purchasers, money for states to fund and implement red flag laws and money for mental health programs. And earlier in June, the Senate passed a bill expanding healthcare and disability benefits to vets exposed to toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan and Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. That's great news. But as Suzanne Gordon, who's been on our show a couple times, reported that the VA administration is, uh, uh, is planning to close VA medical centers and outsource care to private sector profiteers. That's a continuation of Trump's plan. The Biden administration is also continuing the Trump plan to allow Wall Street and private equity firms to capture traditional Medicare. What to do? Go to kyhealthcare.org and learn more about Kentuckians for single-payer healthcare and our campaign to put patients over profits. 
Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn, a retired <clears throat> surgeon. Let me begin with the usual disclosure that any comments that I make during this uh, program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. This is Eugene Shively. I'm a retired rural surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. My views represent those me personally and not Taylor Regional Hospital nor the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville. Now, our topic today is gun violence, uh, and it's certainly appropriate with all the issues going on, uh, the shootings in Michigan, Buffalo, and Uvalde, and the Supreme Court decision uh, to back away from any sort of sensible gun control uh, process. Um, <clears throat> we have a guest speaker today uh, for the second time. Keith Miller was on back in November of 2020. And we had a really good program, talked about a lot of uh, a lot of issues, and there was a number of things we didn't get to. So he's going to back again today to give us an update. Um, Dr. Miller is an associate professor at the University of Louisville in the Department of Surgery, went to medical school at Indiana University, did a general surgery residency and a surgical critical care fellowship of U of L. And he is uh, a member of the U of L uh, University Hospital Trauma Service. Keith, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate your wisdom and your experience in these issues. As we've done in the past, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you'd like. And uh, when you're done, uh, for as long as you'd like, and then we'll begin the conversation. I'd like to ask you to, to kind of, while you're doing this, give us an update about where we are in terms of gun violence today compared to the last program when you were on back in November. So uh, the floor is yours. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I, you, you set the bar high, wisdom and experience. I have at least one of those two things, maybe. Uh, <laughs> and I guess I should jump in with my disclaimer, my own. These are opinions are are my own. They don't represent the opinions of the Department of Surgery or University of Louisville. They're worth about what the paper they're printed on is worth, uh, which for a radio show, that analogy works perfectly because uh, there is no printed paper involved. But uh, again, thanks for having me on. My summary comments, you know, I'll keep them short, but I would say that they're going to echo what we discussed in the first session where we got together and had a nice discussion. Uh, regarding the importance of treating this issue, gun violence, as a public health issue. And it's what amounted, it's amounted to a crisis in our country right now. And we'll talk about some of those numbers as we uh, move on. But the importance of this issue, I, it just can't be overstated. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, does it warrant that widespread approach when you look at the scope of the problem? And the answer to that is absolutely. I think uh, in our country, gun violence has now overtaken motor vehicle accidents, which um, as a traumatic source of injury, we always kind of run those in parallel, but uh, has no, now overtaken motor vehicle accidents as a leading cause of trauma-related years per life lost in the United States. And Louisville um, is no different and worse than uh, in many parts of the country. Uh, as in another analogy, just to put this in proportion for your listeners, 2020 and 2021, Louisville lost more years of potential life to gun violence than COVID-19, the pandemic that changed the way that we live our lives on an everyday basis. And that's not to say that any year of life is any more important than any other, 
um, but it's just to emphasize and compare these, uh, these issues in a proportionate manner. Just to clarify, years of potential life means that um, uh, if your average expected lifespan is 75 or 80 years and you die at 20, you've lost, you know, you've lost 55 to 60 years of life. So what this tells you is that we're losing our young people to this issue, uh, which makes it all the more tragic. So why is a public health approach essential? Well, this is a super complex issue. Uh, and I know all of us would love to have a single solution, a single policy revision that eliminate this as a part of American life, but no policy revision or program is gonna solve this issue for us alone. Uh, this permeates all levels of the sociological spectrum. When I say that, the continuum from individual to the society at large. I think we've got issues in each of those levels at every level in between. Um, the best way that I understand it, and then I'll shut up, but uh, you know, I think uh, in 2000, James Reason, he was a psychologist. He kind of applied the Swiss cheese model to systems, to large systems uh, where holes line up in the barriers to resulting in bad outcomes and you end up with bad outcomes. And so that Swiss cheese model, each layer of cheese uh, that's successfully implemented in a complex system reduces the chances that something bad happens. So in gun violence, those layers of cheese are programming like cure violence, GVI, hospital-based violent injury prevention programs, and policy revision. Those are all pieces of the, 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 the Swiss cheese model. And uh, each, of those, each of those layers is constructed through public health approach, define the problem, identify the risk and protective factors, implement and test a strategy, and then widely adopt strategies that work. So, I mean, that's my piece I'm done preaching, but uh, this is obviously a difficult and complex problem, but I cannot emphasize enough that it is not insolvable. Unsolvable, we can fix this. And so I'm optimistic for the first time in a long time that we're making strides towards doing that. Uh, Gene, you want to begin? Yeah, yes. First, I want to say that uh, Keith Miller is the lead article in the Courier Journal today, uh, <laughs> talking about the trauma service at UofL and some of the massive problems that we have with trauma. And so I encourage you to read that. The other thing was he was in Frankfurt uh, last week uh, and uh, working on getting some money for uh, the program that's called Future Healers Program. And Keith, could you tell us a little bit about that program and how it works? Yeah, Dr. Shively, we were actually in D.C. Uh, because we were doing uh, an FBI training session. We were invited by the FBI to talk about how uh, trauma centers, uh, nonprofits, the Louisville Zoo, which is an integral part of this, the School of Medicine with our medical students, uh, which actually have spearheaded the whole thing, led by Karen Udo. And, and, and many others that have been involved in this, but it's, it's, it's essentially a program that's targeted towards children between the ages of four and 13 who have in some way been impacted by gun violence directly. So some, some have been shot themselves, some have been shot at, some have lost brothers, sisters, moms, dads to, to gun violence. And so each of these children have been impacted in a way that few of us can understand. But the, it started as a pilot program with 25 kids. It's got over 100 kids. The Louisville Zoo's now become a partner because um, the, the potential therapeutic avenue through interacting with a, a nice, safe space uh, uh, at the zoo. And, and that's been incredibly impactful for the, for the young people that are involved in this. 
And so it's a program that's a collaboration between the Department of Surgery, CRISPR 2X Game Changers, the zoo, and uh, UofL Health. And so it's we were talking about that uh, in the FBI training session, and then we've shared it with others in Washington, D.C. Uh, on prior occasions. Uh, Keith, let me let's go kind of back to the basics here. We talked about these before, but uh, you, we don't know who, who listened before and who didn't. But let's uh, get your opinion on on the, you know, the, the causes or the factors of, of gun violence. So I, I've got a list here. I'm going to run through them and then let you pick out whatever your whatever priority you got poverty, drugs. Uh, family supervision status, and I'd like to talk about that in a little bit with you. Mental health, access to guns, gangs, and political violence. So you want to <laughs> unpack all that luggage and, and put it in as kind of a priority for our listeners who may or may not have heard us the last time we did this. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, all those are factors. And I think we kind of alluded to it earlier, that ecological framework where you look at individual level risk factors all the way up to societal risk factors. I think you named several of them. You know, I think uh, on the, it, it, why is this a complex problem? Well, because fundamentally it involves two things. It involves humans and it involves firearms. And each of those things are, are super complex. And the way those things interact creates further complexity. So I think from individual type risk factors, you know, I think substance abuse, you talked about impulsivity, firearm access, uh, obviously adverse childhood events uh, uh, and, and the culture you grow up in, mental illness, if I didn't say that, if you're looking at interpersonal, the way we interact with each other, what's the culture of how we interact with each other, socioeconomic and household status, even things like, you know, do you have food access. These things are incredibly predictive of whether you're going to subsequently suffer from a firearm injury or a violent uh, injury. Uh, community level issues, certainly we can talk about those at the Louisville level. And then societal issues, I mean, you, you know, structural violence and, and structural racism are these big, difficult to understand issues that obviously impact the disparities that we're seeing in gun violence across our country, particularly when you're talking about interpersonal firearm injury. Uh, of the type that we most commonly see in Louisville. It's hard to rank one thing over the other. You know, I think those are all contributors. And so when you're looking for solutions to these problems, uh, you, that's why you need a multifaceted approach because you need to tackle each of these. And if you talk about the ones that have had success, if you talk about the Cure Violence Initiative, which has had great success in, in this country and across the, across the world, um, and you talk at, talk about hospital-based violent injury prevention programs. These things work because they integrate all the pieces of this complex uh, problem. So I don't think I answered your question in ranking them, but I think that's probably uh, difficult to do because for each individual, each of these factors, we have we have individuals that are injured by firearm that have none of these risk factors. Well, we have individuals with all of them. Right. Well, let me let me ask you about the. The, the family supervision status, and then I'm going to express my opinion about where you, you were to prioritize these things. <laughs> the, 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 the shooter in Michigan, parents bought him a gun when there was clearly evidence of <laughs> this kid had some, had some issues. The kid up in Buffalo was living with, I think his, he was living with parents. And, you know, uh, and, and then the one down in Uvalde was living with his grandmother. And, I get, you know, my question is, uh, you know, I was a single parent for a period of time and I had a son 
and we um, we had some issues when he was in, in adolescence. But I guarantee you, if there was an M14 or M15 or AR15 in that house, I would have known about it because I went into the rooms all the time. So I just you want to have you you any thoughts about this in terms of your experience with the gun violence issues here? in louisville is that just not a major issue are these just three outliers or is that somewhere in the process of of of, of being an issue yeah so as a parent i would never judge another parent <laughs> because uh, <laughs> uh certainly i i have my own that create their own mischief but uh, i think you know what you're describing is the intersection of the complexity here i think you're talking to you you addressed individual level issues and family level issues uh, and then if you throw access to firearms on top of that, that's an additional piece. So I think you're describing perfectly the complexity of this. Like, you know, what is the single solution to that problem it would be a way to turn the question around. And uh, there's probably not a single solution to that problem. Uh, the other piece that I would pick out of that would be that I think I said this in the last one, and I think this is probably true, but this isn't one public health issue. This is multiple public health issues embedded under the umbrella of gun violence. Because when you look at mass shootings, or you look at interpersonal violence that we see every day in Louisville, or you look uh, at, uh, at intentional self-inflicted injuries, the relative contribution to each of these contributors is going to be a potentially a bit different. Um, and here we're talking specifically about mass shootings was your question there. And that's going to have a different set of risk factors with relative weights to each of those risk factors, because mass shootings and interpersonal violence on a daily basis look very different. Well, I'm going to I'm going to make a prioritization here. And uh, you don't necessarily have to respond to me. I know this is a political issue and. And uh, I'm going to make uh, two disclosures before I do this. Number one, I am a registered Republican. Having said that, the Republican Party that I uh, belong to doesn't have any relationship to the existing Republican Party today. And secondly, I am a gun owner. Uh, I go to a shooting range about every four to six weeks. I have a 22 long rifle Ruger target pistol and a 45 semi-automatic handgun. And I think I'm pretty good at this. All of those issues that you mentioned go on all around other countries in the world. The difference is they don't have more guns than people. There was a mass shooting in Scotland about 20 years ago. They banned assault weapons. They haven't had one since then. You have to go through a lot of hoops before you can get a weapon in Scotland, um, Canada, uh, New Zealand. Uh, I mean, all of these countries have, have dealt with Israel. Israel is a country that I think probably has um, a more legitimate reason for people carrying weapons than we do in this country with the issues that go on there. <laughs> it's really very difficult to get uh, permission to have one of those things. You just can't go and in a store and buy one. And anyhow, that's my view about that because I mean, I, I understand there's a lot of political issues and if you're dealing with people trying to get this thing sorted out, uh, nobody, I, I'm not, I don't have any political, pro, you know, loss one way or the other. 
Gene, you want to go ahead? I'm going to stop getting on. I'll be on a rant here pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to kick you off the show. (laughs) Uh, You know, one of the things we always talk about are the homicides, but we rarely talk about a huge number of people who are injured and uh, uh, their disabilities and how much money we spend on these people and how many there are. Could you just uh, discuss uh, some of those issues at the University Hospital and uh, how we deal with them and uh, the long-term results? Yeah, so do you want me to address how we deal with them at University Hospital or the cost component? What, Dr. Shiley, which would you want to tackle? Those are two. Well, well you so, mentioned there in, well, yeah. in your article in the paper today, there was some discussion about, you know, the costs uh uh, to the taxpayer and the, and the general cost of, of, of some of these injuries. I think that's what James yes. gets. That would, that let's, let's share that with our listeners. Yeah, no, I think, uh, and we, and we have some pretty granular data here because uh, the office of safe and healthy neighborhoods, which has certainly been a wonderful partner to us and is uh, making, you know, significant strides in our community with addressing this issue and are a partner of ours in sort of the pivot to peace project Uh, They just released a report with the National Institute of Criminal Justice Reform where they looked at this question specifically to see what injuries and what homicides cost uh, our city, our county. And, you know, a shooting injury, they're looking at somewhere around half a million dollars. And a shooting homicide, you're looking at 900 to a million dollars is what their analysis revealed. So if you're talking about, remember in 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 2000 uh in 2020 we had 188 homicides so if you're talking about 900,000 to a million dollars per homicide the cost is significant now something that should be noted is that when they when they detail that report they're looking at costs in six different areas and you alluded to some of those which includes the hospital and rehabilitation but obviously there's the crime scene response by local agencies here the criminal justice system afterwards potential incarceration. There are victim support elements to this where, uh, again, the community itself tries to wrap its arms around in the in, in the form of some resources to those that have been impacted by this issue and then lost tax revenue. So they break it down very nicely into where these costs are sort of attributed to. And we think of hospitalizations, but we don't think of all the downstream steps that follow, including the criminal justice system and incarceration and trying to find resources for those families. So I don't know what else to say other than those numbers are staggering. And when you look at those numbers and then you look at what we've dedicated from a resource perspective to trying to prevent these injuries, which again is the best treatment for these injuries. We would rather not have individuals suffering from firearm injury in our hospital if we can avoid it. Uh, not just not, not for financial reasons, just because of the pain and suffering that goes along with this and, and, and the widespread grief and tragedy that this results in. And so but you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars for Louisville, for Jefferson County that's spent on treating this issues. And then what we what we spend in, in, in addressing it on the front end is pretty minimal. Let's talk a little bit about the injuries and the missiles. Um, what what kind of ex- what's the experience in the trauma trauma service with high velocity versus low velocity um, injury? Yeah, so it's going to certainly be a, a smaller percentage of higher velocity injuries if you're talking about rifle type injuries. Uh, we're most of what we see in Louisville are handguns. 
that that results in the majority injuries. And remember, from a ballistics perspective, there's two things. You know, the big picture perspective is it matters more where you're hit than what you're hit with 100% of the time. Uh, a firearm injury to the head is usually more uh, has a much higher mortality than a firearm injury to the trunk or the extremity. The other piece is that if you want a ballistics one-on-one course would be that, you know, it's a function of kinetic energy and it's that equation. I have to go way back in my mind to think about this, but that equation is one half times mass times velocity squared. And so velocity is really what dictates the energy behind a bullet passing through human tissue. And then there's that permanent cavitation. That's where the bullet track destroys or crushes everything in its path. And then there's the temporary cavitation. That's sort of that wave, that shock wave of energy that uh, you can't see my hands, but uh, that shock wave of energy that emits around the, around the projectile and temporarily disrupts tissues and sort of shocks them back in and out of space. And so in different parts of the body, that can result in completely different injury patterns. If that's brain tissue, that's a major problem. If it's lung tissue, it impacts your ability to oxygenate. And so that's really, if I had to just give you a ballistics one-on-one, those are the two things I would take home is energy and location, location, location. All right. Let's okay. talk about the AR-15, which is a weapon that uh, is being sold to 18-year-old in this country who cannot rent a car, cannot buy a drink, or rent a hotel room. Now, what, what kind of an injury pattern do you get from the AR-15? Well, so the, 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 AR, the AR-15 or any of that type of weapon is going to have a significant velocity. And so, as we said, when you go back to that energy equation, the velocity of those injuries is tremendous. And so you get a significant amount of tissue damage. Now, the type of projectile is also an important piece. Obviously, jacketing and those sort of things help prevent bullets from uh, from. Um, from, from disfiguring or basically blowing out and creating larger permanent cavitation. So some of those velocities, some, some of that can result in a projectile passing completely through, but they create significant amount of tissue damage. Well, you probably don't know this about me, but a long, long time ago and far, far away for a period of time, I was a trauma surgeon. I was a... I do that. You didn't? Okay. Well, I... I I spent, I was a third year resident in a four year general surgery program at the University of Maryland. I spent the first three months, 1968, in a civilian hospital in Vietnam and had a lot of experience with high velocity missile injuries. And it was impressive. Um, the first encounter I had was a Viet Cong sapper. This is a guy who runs on to a, an airfield somewhere with an explosive charge and they put it around the helicopters and, you know, just try to blow up planes and helicopters and try to disable them. And there was a there was a raid in the evening at an airfield about five or six kilometers outside of town. And this guy was was shot, uh, I'm assuming, with an M-16, because that was a weapon that was used by the American military. So they bring this, they bring him in, they, they wrapped a blanket around him and left him on the battlefield and they brought him in and there, there was an entrance wound. It was very small in the back, kind of below the ribs and above his iliac crest. <laughs> the exit wound was literally 
a hole in his anterior abdominal wall with bowel all over the place. And I'm surprised that there wasn't more than that. He didn't last very long. He died before we even got to operate on him. And I, the next three months, it was just uh, in an extremity wound. We, we, we debrided them. We never closed them. Uh, we debrided them again and again and again. And uh, the AR-15 is a civilian model or a version of the M-16. The only difference is the automatic uh, component is is doesn't exist on the AR-15, and uh, it's just uh, uh, every one of those three shootings: the Michigan, the um, uh, Buffalo, and Uvalde are all carried out with uh, <laughs> this weapon of war, which was designed designed to kill or maim, sold to eighteen-year-olds. I mean, I, until we get around to dealing with that and the ability to buy guns in one place or the other uh, by anybody who wants to buy it, whether they've got a mental health issue or, or just got a personality disorder, is, is um, I, I agree with you about every one of those other issues that we talked about in terms of uh, the factors in gun violence, that they all exist in other countries as well. Yeah, yeah, no. So I'll have three reactions to that. First, okay, uh, sure. you know, I think, like I said, you know, humans and firearms and a lot of those issues we talked about, those other ones, you know, those are human issues. And then we we you're starting to get to the firearm issue. So first, pol you know, policy revision is absolutely part of the solution. Absolutely. Second part, uh, you know, yes, those injuries are difficult to treat because, uh, the damage is not readily visible when the patient first arrives, which makes yeah. that really tricky. Uh, and as you know, by doing this, one of the things about penetrating injuries that makes it maybe a little less complex to manage is you really have a roadmap. You can kind of follow the trajectory of the bullet. That, that doesn't mean they don't bounce all over the place and create damage in all sorts of places. But generally, you can follow the track and have a, an idea of what's potentially injured in, in those in those high velocity injuries. Uh, tissue, you lose tissue uh, down the road. You can lose tissue 5, 10, 15 days down the road because of that temporary cavitation. And uh, go ahead, Dr. Shiley, were you going to say something? Yes, uh, we're talking about uh, gun control and psychiatric problems. And in the new law, it's going to be emphasis on uh, law enforcement being able to uh, track mental illness. One of the problems I have with that is uh, how do you get those records? I know if you uh, get criminal records, it's easy for the police to get, but you cannot get juvenile records. And when I was in practice, if I tried to get psychiatric records, it was almost impossible. If I was getting ready to operate on someone and a patient told me they were schizophrenic and I tried to get the records from the psychiatrist or the or the hospital that took care of him, it was almost impossible. So how is getting psychiatric records uh, uh, going to help the situation uh, in our epidemic with gunshot wounds? Yeah, so uh, that's, a, that's, a super, that's an interesting question. And it speaks to, with this current legislation, I think one of the things, one of the 
the differentiation to make is that, you know, they didn't, you talk about red flag laws, for example, about separating individuals from their firearms, and they did not introduce federal legislation to do that. What they did is they incentivized states to do that. And how it's relevant to your question is how this is done on the ground, I think, remains to be seen. And so how you obtain those records, you know, right now, from a background check perspective, the Kentucky, from my understanding, uses the FBI uh, to perform those background checks for sales uh, from firearms dealers. But uh, I think, you know, how, how what does this look like in the end, I think is going to be interesting because um, uh, and that's why I believe they incentivize states rather than pass because to deal with this on a federal. Some individuals might point out that dealing with this on a federal level is very difficult once you talk about the logistical challenges that Dr. Shively just highlighted obtaining those records. And you're talking about medical records here. You're not talking about criminal records. You're talking about a medical record. And so how you smooth that exchange of information while at the same time protecting individuals will be interesting to see how that evolves. But I think that's an important distinction about the legislation that just passed, right or wrong. I think the understanding that's important. If I remember correctly, when we talked about this uh, with you the last time, we talked about homicide and suicides, kind of who's shooting or killing themselves. And if I remember correctly, the at the time, most of the suicides were older or middle-aged white men living in East Louisville, and most of the homicides were young uh, black men shooting each other in West Louisville. That may be an oversimplification, but can you... Uh, where are we with those issues today? Yeah, I think, you know, you're bringing up the significant disparity that we see across our country in who's injured by firearm. And that's right. why when we talk about the complexity of this issue, societal issues have to be addressed. And I think we kind of talked about last time how, uh, you know, structural violence and structural racism, if you parse this out and you look at redlining maps from 100 years ago, 90 years ago, from the from the 1930s and that was a way that our country you know tried to reinvest in places that they thought it was a good place to reinvest which meant predominantly white america and then areas uh with vulnerable populations were essentially ignored if you look at maps from that time period they are incredibly predictive of where you're going to see interpersonal injury today and so i think that speaks to you know some of the contributors to the disparities we're seeing i think from a self-inflicted intentional self-inflicted type injury you're right i think in the fact that the the that's a much more proportionate looking distribution across louisville at this point in time um you know and th this data is now a couple of years old how the covid pandemic has changed that distribution across our our area and across the country maybe a question that's worth looking at. But I think the disparities, those are the societal pressures that we're talking about that result in the disparities we're seeing in who's injured by these types of weapons. Um, I was having a conversation with a local policeman this weekend. Uh, he's doing most of his work for the Air Force of Security right now, but he's been on the police force for several years. And we brought up the issue about mass ca casualty. He was a little concerned about uh, the leadership in the police department setting up a, a leadership command post. 
And the issue came up, does the Louisville medical community have enough facilities to take care of, say, 30 or 40 people who were injured at a concert or one of the many conventions we have here in Louisville? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a layered question. Um, I think 30 or 40, the answer would be yes, you can create a hypothetical where you will exceed the capacity of our healthcare uh, facilities to take care of that issue. What's interesting, if you look in prior mass shootings, is where you think patients will go after a mass shooting isn't necessarily where patients end up. And I think if you're talking about uh, Las Vegas, certainly the patients were all over. They weren't at just trauma centers. And so they were spread out across. So if you look at our community, you know, I think Norton, Baptist, U of L, you know, Jewish, you know, patients are going to be distributed really dependent on where the, where the, where the event occurs. And then patients are going to have to be redistributed across those healthcare systems. So I think, you know, there has been a significant amount of work done across uh, disciplines here in how Louisville would respond to a mass casualty. Certainly, you know, for us, um, there are major events that happen in Louisville where our blood pressure is up a little bit until they're over, just because you feel like those are events. And that's a sad state of affairs, obviously. But uh, there are certainly events where large numbers of people are gathered in Louisville that uh, uh, make us all a little anxious until they're over. And so I think to answer your question, you know, 30 or 40, I think so, you know, you can create a hypothetical situation that exceeds the capacity of what we have available, certainly. I think that's a really scary issue. And let me add, I had, I had dinner over the weekend with a retired attorney, friend of mine, I've known him for years. He took a fall at home and he fractured his little finger and went to an emergency room here in Louisville. I won't mention the name of which one and spent seven hours because they were understaffed. There wasn't anybody there. I mean, seven hours. And I think if something like that were to happen in Louisville, I haven't been in an emergency room in years, uh, you know, since I retired. But I think there's some issues, some serious issues about uh, capacity. I'm not talking about U of L. I think U of L hospital is a different issue, but I think some of these other other um, healthcare institutions around the city are are really uh, very close to the edge in terms of their ability to deal with some of these uh, the everyday issues, much less dealing with some kind of a high capacity situation like that. I think it would be a disaster. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's every healthcare entity's experienced capacity issues during the pandemic. We know that. We know that whichever hospital you went to uh, at the time during the pandemic was probably the hospital you were going to stay in, uh, because the ability for or for tertiary, quaternary care facilities to accept patients in. We all read the news and saw patients in, you know, Arkansas trying it had to be transferred six states away or wherever, not whatever state you want to choose, being transferred six states away in order to get care and waiting on a transfer list for, for, for days and days while they potentially had an acute issue that required immediate attention. I think there is that. And I think every, I mean, healthcare staffing across the board is in a place that I don't think we've seen historically. I think that's absolutely true. I think, um, I hope, <laughs> I'm optimistic that the people that decide to provide healthcare as their profession, 
and dedicate their lives to it. I'm talking about doctors, nurses, talking about techs. I'm talking about the whole spectrum. In the event that we were in a crisis, I think we would respond. Our ability to respond to a crisis that lasts several days is probably better than our ability to, to respond to a crisis that lasts months to years, which was what we've seen with the COVID pandemic. I do believe that we, you know, the, the people that do this for a living would rise to the occasion. Um, does that mean that there's not opportunity to look at this and make sure we're ready for it in, in the best way possible and make sure that we identify issues that may come up along the way? No, I mean, we need to do that. But I'm optimistic that uh, I guess maybe I'm an optimist in general, but uh, I think uh, we I think we'll see a response to that type of situation. Boy, I hope you're right, because the people who who rose to the occasion during the pandemic, which were the physicians, the ER physicians, the ICU people, the nurses, respiratory therapists uh, were overworked. They, in my opinion, they were often exploited. Uh, not, not that that was an intentional thing, but there wasn't anybody else. And uh, you know, we we have a healthcare system in this country that really needs to address itself because we're we're we just we just didn't do a good job with with the pandemic. Go ahead, Gene. Do we have a system where we actually practice these type of uh, disasters and set up command centers and do exercises like the military does and uh, how this would happen, how we would do things and then sit down and and go over and find out the mistakes yeah. we made? Yeah, absolutely. Now there's drilling that goes on. There's tabletop drilling, tabletop meaning, you know, you're just given a written scenario and you kind of go through it and identify challenges that you'll come up with. We do both internal and external uh, drilling and then wider spread drilling, which I think is what you're talking about, where there's potentially actors running around doing different parts of it. We do do that uh, on a yearly basis. Do we do it as much as we should? Probably not because we should be spending, you know, a tremendous amount of time doing that. But obviously, Given what you described, Dr. Flynn, over the last couple of years with COVID pandemic, doing drills in the face of an already short-staffed situation makes it exceedingly difficult. But yes, we need Absolutely. drills, and I think that's important. Well, uh, the, the one other issue I'd like to bring up is uh, uh, gun safety. It's, most of us remember cars in the 50s and 60s were not very safe. And we finally figured out that safety belts would help. And if you move gas tanks around, then you, you can make a much safer car. And that's my understanding that you can do the same thing with guns. You can uh, fix them so only the owner can fire them. And uh, you can fix the magazines. Uh, is, that, is it possible that we can produce guns like that and save lives so that uh, somebody just can't come in your house and uh, pick up a gun and start firing it. Yeah. I mean, the question, do we have the, do we have the capacity? Do we have the potential to do that? We absolutely do. Uh, and I think there's multiple kind of what you described, there's multiple areas of technology that are being looked at in order to do that. I think, you know, I, I, I love kind of the way you hit on motor vehicle accidents in America and how the response to that changed the last Every decade over the last six decades, the number of deaths per vehicular mile traveled has decreased to the point now where we just kind of described in the opening where 
death by firearm has resulted in more years of potential life loss than motor vehicle accidents. And I think that narrative changed from who caused the injury, who, who was driving, right? What, what were they doing to what caused the injury and had a focused look on the automobile itself. And so that's when I say humans and firearms. And so when you talk about policy revision and technology, but you know, I call it the who, what, when, and how of policy revision, like who, how old do you have to be? Are we doing background checks? The what? Uh, Dr. Flynn talked about assault rifles, high capacity magazines. When? When can you lose your firearm? Like these red flag laws and how? How are guns transferred? How are guns bought? Where are these loopholes uh, that uh, uh, potentially result in bad outcomes and injury and death? And so I think those are the pieces of policy revision that you're kind of looking at now. And it's analogous analogy because seatbelts, brakes. Imagine the mortality of driving a car before the before the advent of brakes. I imagine it was pretty high. Um, and so that was never politicized in the way that firearms have been. Uh, and like we said on the last show, we did see our public health response to COVID sort of politicized, uh, but uh, with motor vehicle accidents, it didn't happen. And so I think there's a there's a place here to move forward. Well, with the car, there was not some kind of ideological belief that uh, the Second Amendment of the Constitution seems to allow anybody who wants to, uh, whatever their state of mind or, or any other reason, do anything they want to do with a gun. It's interesting, if you read the Second Amendment, the first four words are a well-regulated militia. Now, how that got transferred into this, quote, God-given right to everyone have a gun is beyond me but you know that's the issue that's going to be really difficult to crack is that 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 belief system that ideological block that that allows anybody to do anything and buy a gun without having to register it or, or have any kind of limitations um, I mean, that's 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 a tough one. Yeah. And that's and the history of that's very interesting. You know, I think that, uh, you know, if you look back, you know, there's only three countries, from my understanding, that have the constitutional right to bear arms. You know, it's the United States, Mexico and maybe I think Guatemala are the three that have it written in. Their, and then how that was interpreted for several decades to centuries may have been different. And then obviously the Supreme Court ruling in 2008 uh, kind of changed the way we we thought about that, or at least the country approached that situation. So you're right. I mean, that's a, that's, that's, that's part of the situation that we're dealt with now. And uh, we move forward chipping away. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> change horses a little bit. What, what's the health insurance status? You know, if you've got a, a trauma service and you've got people coming in from all over, can you break down, um, you know, who's got good insurance, how many Medicare, Medicaid, no insurance or, or the, that you deal with in the with gunshot injuries uh, at the U of L trauma service? Yeah, I mean, nationally, if you look at it, you know, there was just a paper that put out, uh, you know, looking at uh, firearm injuries from 2007 to 16. So you're talking about 120,000 injuries. So that's a pretty good sample size across our country. And if you yeah. looked at all comers, commercial insurance was about 25%. Government insurance was about 26%. And then self-pay was the remaining 49% or so. 
and kind of talking about the disparities that we've alluded to earlier, that's not true. I mean, if you look at, you know, white individuals, they're 40% commercial, uh, black individuals, maybe 18% commercial based on this analysis. So those same, those same disparities in what you're seeing as to where firearm injury happens and who's most impacted by this issue apply to insurance status as well. So uh, those are some numbers for you in general. Um, in Louisville, you know, I think 2007 to 16 is an interesting time frame, right? I mean, because you're looking Affordable Care Act, you know, and so more current numbers on a national scale are not typically readily available. But uh, I would say, you know, from our standpoint in Louisville, it's probably the same. It's probably that 20 to 30 percent are commercial, uh, 20 to 30 percent are going to be government uh, Medicaid uh, or Medicare, and then the remaining are going to be self-pay. Now, how much of that, uh, the, the, the numbers you gave us earlier about what the taxpayers have to eat, how much of that is related to the insurance status and how much of it is related to all of the other factors that go into dealing with with um, with uh, gun violence, the, the, the police activity, investigations, uh, whatever public service are involved, the ambulances. How, how, how do you, can you break that apart a little bit or is that is that an unanswered yeah, question? I can. I can. I mean, because because of this this report that they just put out from the office. And so they break it down very specifically into those six cost sort of pieces. And so I think. The hospitalization for someone that dies as a result of injury is going to be lower, believe it or not, than the hospitalization for someone that survives those injuries because you're going to add on the rehabilitation component. A lot of our homicides are, are pronounced prior to arriving or shortly after arriving to a hospital. Uh, so if you look at their breakdown, you're looking at $145,000 of hospital costs for survivors and $90,000 for uh, those that don't survive or the homicides in our community. And then they sort of break that down. You know, I mean, we looked at this five years ago, so those numbers are all uh, pretty low, but you're looking at a thousand to $5,000 for a treated and released by that. I mean, someone comes in with a firearm injury and they're actually well enough and the firearm injury does not necessarily require admission to the hospital. That's really frightening. You know, when you think about the fact that 35% of our injuries are not admitted to the hospital, we're at a, <laughs> We're at a point in time where if you are shot in an extremity and you don't hit a nerve, artery, or bone, you're probably going home a few hours after you show up at the hospital. And so, you know, there's still charges involved in that or cost involved in that. Cost and charges, obviously, you you all know the distinction between those two, two things very well. But uh, obviously, abdominal injuries are super expensive. Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shiva, you know that. Many abdominal injuries require multiple, multiple surgeries to fix. Surgeries are expensive. Traumatic or brain injuries are expensive if you survive the first few days because your rehabilitation costs are going to be high. Spinal cord injuries, extremely expensive. If you're talking about the downstream impact of the inability to maybe wean from a ventilator, to be ventilator dependent the rest of your life from a high cervical spinal cord injury is extremely costly, not just to that individual, but someone, that entire family unit is disrupted because their entire time and energy is devoted to caring for that individual. So I don't know if that answers your question, but you're looking at a tremendous amount of cost. The other breakdown, I mean, uh, a huge part of that 
is incarceration is going to be a 25 to 50 percent of that cost. Again, when you talk about half a million dollars for a non-fatal injury and a million dollars for a homicide, lost revenue is a small part, crime scenes a small part. So hospitalization and incarceration are the two pieces that are very expensive when you break it down by cost. All right, Keith, yeah. we're getting down to the last five minutes. So Ooh, you know, all right. We're going to have to, have to <laughs> talk fast. <laughs> Who's absorbing uh, the cost of the patients who don't have insurance? Uh, it's a combination between hospitals and taxpayers. Um, so obviously, you know, there are, there are dollars that go towards the care of those that are uninsured through states, through counties. And some of that mo money is funneled through institutions that care for a high percentage of uh, uninsured patients. And then hospitals obviously themselves uh, could potentially eat some of that cost, which way back in 17, when we looked at that, which is a major issue in the sense that, you know, many of your trauma centers are your safety net hospitals across our country. And so uh, when you're doing that, um, it can potentially impact the ability, the sustainability of the hospital in and of itself. And we've seen hospitals that are trauma centers across our country close as a result of this. I think the Affordable Care Act was a step in the right direction from that standpoint. Um, uh, but uh, that's who's eating the cost. You're going to be taxpayers and healthcare. And no one has any sympathy for healthcare institutions. Believe me, I understand that. But uh, at the end of the day, that cost is somehow spread. Because remember, all that money that goes to the hospital came probably from a taxpayer in in, in the first in Keith, the first. Uh, I, I want to thank you again. You're you were you're a great informative guest. We got three minutes left. I was going to give you an opportunity to make whatever <laughs> comments you'd like to make in a short period of time. And then Mark is going to do his final discharge announcements and we're going to be done. No, I mean, I, they, I just reiterate the fact that I think in Louisville, you're seeing it coming together. You're seeing programming across the board. You're seeing the implementation of CVI, which cure violence. You're seeing GVI, group violence intervention. You're seeing hospital-based violent injury prevention programs. You're seeing things like Future Healers. And that's through the work of a lot of people involved with the Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. Uh, you know, Christopher 2X Game Changers is a, is a valuable partner to us. But you're seeing programs implemented across. And now, you know, policy revision has to catch up to that because, again, it's humans and it's firearms. And those two pieces uh, are important. But rather than throw my hands up in the air at the end of the day and say, well, until they do this, I don't uh, no, There's nothing I can do. That's simply not true. And so we'll continue to do the things we're doing in order to make headway. So I think uh, with that, I will shut up. Well, thank you again. You're a great guest speaker. Thank you. Thanks again, Dr. Miller. Uh, great show, guys. Um, you know, PBS has got a uh, show. I saw part of it last night dealing, uh, talking to young folks and professionals about mental illness in young people and all the stressors that they're uh, facing. So very heartbreaking. Um, and uh, Gene, um, the automakers just didn't wake up one morning and they were going to make our vehicle safer. There was a lot <laughs> right. of public That's pressure right. That's on right. that front. <laughs> That's uh, right. And uh, just want to remind folks that uh, Kentuckians for single payer health care is sponsoring transportation up to a rally in Washington, D.C. to celebrate uh, Medicare's birthday. 
That'll take place Friday, July the 29th. We'll go up, we'll stay overnight. We'll do the uh, a rally and a march on the 30th and uh, then return to Louisville. So if you have some time and uh, enthusiasm, feel free to join us. You can contact our chairperson, Kay Tillo, and let her know you'd like to go. We'll save you a spot. Kay's email address is nursenpo at aol.com, nursenpo at aol.com. The uh, group has a website at kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Harriet and Kay also manage our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram accounts if you'd like to learn more how to be involved. So for Single Payer Radio, thank you very much.